This podcast is for general informational purposes only and represents the individual opinions of Dr. Dimitri Bick, Dr. Stefan de Graff, Dr. Suzanne Mignon, and the guests. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services and should not be taken as medical advice or an establishment of standard of care. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Please don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe, but more importantly leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Reviews not only help us grow listeners, but also help us grow as a show, improve our content, and make us better. There is so much to talk about this weekend. There's the college transfer portal is blowing the doors off of shamateurism and what we used to think was college football, but is now just minor league professional football. LeBron won another championship uh, last night. The (laughs) Army-Navy game (laughs) ended on a failed tush-push. Otani signed the richest... Uh, the richest contract in the history of the world. Oh yeah, um, and and that's going to be worthless in eight years when he's a hundred years old and can't hit or pitch anymore and blew out his arm three times. We had Buffalo upsetting Kansas City on a penalty that was the craziest penalty. Kansas City still can't get over it. Nope. We got Steph getting pulled over on his way back from the Lions Bears game <laughs> for being young and black and having his hat real low and getting pulled over for doing 55 and a 50 foe. <laughs> but but we start today with breaking news. The dog discriminator has been located and they have apologized for discriminating against our dog. And now the search goes on for the real culprit, the real Barker. So that is, that is the news of the day from my world. But of all of those things that we wanted to, that, that I just mentioned, I'm most interested in how you got pulled over today. I, 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 I don't know. So I have a theory. I'm driving across state lines from Illinois State to Michigan, right? But my license plate from Pennsylvania. So I'm like the odd car, the shiny mm-hmm. car. Yeah, so if, yeah. I'm, if I'm three miles above, I'm, I, that guy's That's not right. from around here. It's not from Illinois, it's from Michigan. Mm-hmm. He's driving too fast. I'm five miles above 50. You know, I'm like, hey. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, but you state? claim you claim it was five miles older. That's what they're claiming, allegedly. allegedly. Because, know. you know, it's, you you know, you got a ticket, but you can always. I, I, I didn't get a ticket. I got a warning. Oh, okay. I got a warning. Got a warning. I, got, I got a warning. You got a warning. You know, I, I, I use I use my, my my badge. I said I am a physician. I would never break the law. You know, <laughs> he works all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I would not break the law. <laughs> I got a license to protect. I got a license <laughs> officer. I have a license to protect. I would never do that. Wow. You know. 
Wow, you pulled the rank. Wow. That's great. Was the guy wearing a flak jacket with three guns and a and like his nah. chest was out to here because he, he was wearing. He actually was pretty nice. He was nice. It was nice. Did, did I tell the nice. story on here of how I got pulled over with my son in the back seat for for driving no. near Nova? I got pulled over. Um, the What'd guy you caught do? me. It was, it's, it's a small little street, like right next to Nova. I you blew stops. My son. You blew stop. Oh. It was like a curve, right? And and you don't see him until you get turn the curve. And then I saw him sitting there, and I'm like, oh, I'm busted. I was doing about 14 over the speed limit or something. It's 45. I was doing 59. On a school zone. So I was going. Yeah. So he pops on the lights, right? And immediately gets behind me, and I'm like, oh, crap. So I slowed down to below the speed limit to acknowledge him. But it's a one-lane road in both directions. So I can't just stop in the middle of the road and i can't pull over because there's no breakdown lane mm -hmm. if you know nova it's called um i believe it's called uh 30th street or it's, 30th, it's yeah. named after abe fishler. Abe, abe fishler street yeah mm -hmm. so you know that street it's it's very thin and small and there's grass on both sides you can't just pull over so i keep driving until i get to a place to pull over so and the guy chase. starts tailgating me so it's and flips on his his siren like I'm, like I'm, I'm going forty now. I saw them below the speed. Was that helicopter above you? Also and, flying. And, he's like, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going like this in the rear view. I'm like, I see you. <laughs> you know, like this, I keep driving and I pull into like a there's like a a complex, a, a residential complex, and I pulled in and parked there. And he like did that thing where the police come in like right behind you and park like sideways. So you can't back out. Lock you in. Because, because you were out. obviously. Because you didn't gets, pull over. You kept going. I, I had, like, this is this is white privilege, let me tell you, because I had an attitude problem with this guy. As soon as he comes up, I had her, I already had the thing. I had my license out the window, and I turned to him, and I go, dude, why are you tailgating me with lights and sirens like I'm running from you? He's like, you were running from me. I'm like, there's no place to pull over over there. What am I supposed to do? He's like, you could have pulled to the side. I'm like, I would have blocked, Ugh, forget it. And he's like, do you feel safe now? Do you feel safe? Do you feel safe? And I'm thinking to myself, no, I don't feel safe. You're wearing a flak jacket like you're going into a Iran, okay? You, you have a piece on the side that could kill me in a second. And like, you're also physically bigger than me. And you probably have an arsenal in your trunk. Like, no, I don't feel safe. I have a kid in the back seat and I have no armor on me. No, of course I don't feel safe, but that's not what I said. I said, yeah, sure, I feel safe. It's like, okay, I just want to make sure you feel safe. Like, <laughs> this is white privilege, because if I was, you know, a minority, that might not no, I mean, work yeah. out very well. It would, it would have been upset you fleeing the scene, literally. Yes. Yeah, you would have got okay. turned. Would have, would have and guns would have right. been Exactly, you would have been your gun drawn and get cycling. Really? Yeah. Put your hands on the car. Walk this, backwards. <laughs> this is the problem with America right now, is the police look like they're going to war. And, you know, like you look at police in like England, they don't, they're not wearing the clothes that these guys are wearing, but whatever. I'm not ragging on the police. The guy's doing his job, but still, you know what I mean? Like, don't, well, don't so tailgate me attitude, like I'm running from you. But yeah, well, I've got an attitude. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, we had some <laughs> feedback yesterday from a listener who asked us to discuss the, um, the Ivy League presidents going in front of the Senate. Oh, talking yeah. about um, their policies on speech. And I got to be honest with you, I've got takes on that. And I'm sure you both do too. But that we can't do that in like the three minutes we have left. 
in this segment because it, it requires research that I did a little bit of, but it's yeah. speaking clips and it's just not going to work. So um, thank you for that feedback. I think another episode that we can. Yeah, you no, know, that, that's interesting. That, there's so much going on with universities. Sometimes it's almost like talking about, you know, the reservation from the natives. You know, they have their own laws, their own thing. Anything done on campus, they have their, they have their own police score. You know, so maybe we should have a, a different episode on, on universities and how they, they, they treat people and how they, they regulate laws and rules and what's allowed, what's not allowed. No, I yeah. agree. I, I, I looked up. I looked up specifically Harvard's conduct policy because that is what they were getting at. They were asking, you know, right. the, the speech that was sent out specifically in Harvard because of the letter did that violate right. their conduct? And I actually their looked code it of up, conduct, yeah, their code of conduct. And I looked it up uh, because the answer that was given by the president apparently was not something people liked very much. Um, but anyway, that's going to be so another it's, it's, segment. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, we'll do that later. We'll do that. Later. Yeah, I was going to ask, is, is code of conduct, is, is it a rule? Is it a suggestion? Is it a, you know, code of conduct doesn't really entail that it's, I don't know, it's bindable. I don't know. So. Well, it's bindable if you're it's in a binding. School. Is it binding? Binding, it's binding. Yeah. Well, I think I it's know. binding as far as your contract for being there at the school. That's right. Right. Uh, and you get arrested for not going with right. the code of conduct, depending on what yeah. it is, but probably not. You you can get kicked out of the school. You can get put on probation. You can, yeah, there's a list of uh, yeah, sanctions that they have. Offenses, it could be anything from, see, see. Yeah, it could be anything from censure to actually getting thrown out, expulsion. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, we're going to okay. we're going to table that for another time. Do you we'll have any takes on, uh, yeah. on Buffalo beating Kansas City? We wanted that. So did we wanted it? Yes, but we didn't want it at the same time. Do I, I really want to sit there and root for Buffalo winning? No. no. Um, no. Was it necessary to some extent because Casey lost, but then we have the Ravens winning. So I, yeah, that, that pissed me off. Like you couldn't believe there was a huge block in the back on that return yeah. that they completely ignored because you know what? The officials wanted to go home. It was wet and, and I get it. It was overtime. But it was, come on, man. It was so clear. That upset me more than the KC Buffalo game. I, I wasn't ups necessarily upset about it. The KC Buffalo game is one of those rare win-wins. You know, like if KC loses, we win as Dolphin fans because KC now has five Buffalo losses lost. and we're two ahead of them or one and a half ahead of them. If Buffalo lost, then, well, Buffalo losing is always great. It's always great. It's always yeah. great. Always, always great. Just like the Patriots are knocked out of playoff contention. Big surprise, oh, big fantastic. surprise, big surprise. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Um, the Jets win. I didn't even see that. The Jets totally blew away the Texans. Wow. Completely. That's great because the Texans are now seven and six. Mm -hmm. so, now, tomorrow yeah. night, we have the Dolphins-Titans game. It's Monday night yep. football. Yeah. Uh, they should be good for Tennessee. They should be good for the Jets until mm -hmm. they get to the Cowboys uh, on New Year's Eve. Uh, not New Year's Eve. Christmas um, Eve. Christmas mm -hmm. Eve. Christmas, Christmas Eve. That's yeah. going to be. But but to be honest with you, the bigger game is going to be at Baltimore. Yes. That's going to be the big one because that's going to be for number one in the conference. Yeah. I'm not horribly worried about going to Baltimore as I am going to KC, for instance, or Buffalo. Yeah. Um, so even if we get the second seed, I'm probably going to be okay with that. But if we get the first, if we get the number one seed, man, you should start buying tickets to Vegas, man. 
<laughs> right? I know. I know. So I did a very stupid thing many years ago when my older son was just a diehard. Well, he still is. He was so into the Dolphins and football and he wanted to go to every game. And so, of course, got season tickets. We go to all the games, just the home ones. And uh-huh. um, in my son at one point, he was about five years old or so, said, Mommy, I want to go to the Super Bowl. I want to go see a Super Bowl game. And so <laughs> I, not thinking it would ever happen in our lifetime as a possibility, because for those of us who have been Dolphin fans, we know the ups and downs of doing this. Um, I said, dude, listen, I said, if Dolphins go to the Super Bowl, we're going to go. Oh, fantastic. I hope you have $40,000. Well, you know, (laughs) now is when we call on all of our listeners and anyone who knows people. Yes, please send us us to the Super Bowl. Please send us to the Super Bowl. (laughs) I've already gotten permission to spend all of this money it's six thousand <laughs> or seven thousand just to get in the door of, of yeah for the tickets oh, and that's boy. not counting flight uh no, hotel food yeah. hotels uh, but and you're not going to be but, able to touch a hotel there now at this point anyway well airbnb you're gonna have to stay outside yeah oh the airbnbs yeah. are all jacked up too it's everywhere that, that, well the the cost is not the issue it's whether they're available yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. But yeah, like it's it's been determined that if the Dolphins make it, the Psych Effect podcast will be reporting live from Las Vegas at the Super Bowl. So you're paying now for now they just have to, to I'm yes. paying for me. Yes. We would love to have a sponsor. We'll be there. For we'll, us. Be there. we'll be there. <laughs> but but since we don't have a sponsor, we're gonna have to uh, to pay our own. We'll send life. one of us. We'll spend, we'll do work the procedures. You got the funding, and we said we'll go. <laughs> anyway, healthcare stat, healthcare horror stat of the week coming up. Popular segment, the healthcare horror stat of the week. Let's go. America has the greatest healthcare in the world. Deductibles, drug tears, PAs, and copay. But you can get an MRI today for the low price of just 2K. America, yay! The stat. From CDC report, 46% of healthcare workers report feeling burnout often or very often in 2022, compared to 32% in 2018. Almost half of those in the field also reported they were likely or very likely to apply for a new job in contrast to other worker groups who reported a decrease in job turnover turnover intention. Also, harassment at work rose from 6.4% to 13.4% from 2018 to 2022. Of those, 85% reported anxiety, 81% burnout, and 60% depression. Non-harassed individuals, 53% anxiety, 42% burnout, and 31% depression. Uh, Either of you guys burned out at all? (laughs) So, I mean, burnout has so many different, you know, definition, depending on who you ask. 
burnout is not uniform, you know. People have burnout and you don't even know they're burnouting, depending how. Yeah, I think there might be times where we might get overwhelmed with our work. Right. Um, not necessarily burnout per se, but I think that there are times we get overwhelmed and, yeah. you know, um, but it's interesting, these stats, how it goes from 2018 to 2022. We have the COVID factor. Yeah, exactly. That yep. factors COVID. in there as well. Exactly. Uh, it didn't specify, you know, from like, say, 2020 to 2022, which would have been, I don't know if that's where the bulk of these increases are. Correct. Um, but COVID definitely had a, a, a big, big uh, effect on this because of the shortages in not just the healthcare workers in general, but all of the safety gear. And then the, the mistrust in the, in the healthcare yeah, community. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. all the people freaking yeah. out over COVID and the mistrust. Um, I could totally see all of this and it's bearing out in the, in the stats. Uh, personally, burnout's a strong word, but I can't say that I haven't felt close to that at times uh, because, you know, I don't know how you guys aren't either because in our field, we get a lot, you know, it's, it's the ones that we can help depression, anxiety, those kinds of things, bipolars, there's a certain satisfaction in that, but there's a lot of people that we can't yeah, for whatever yeah. reason, either because they're treatment resistant or they're help rejecting, uh, specifically personality disorders. And those are the type of people that you take things home. Uh, you're not supposed to take anything personally, but it's not easy to leave it at the office yeah. sometimes. Um, so those those are usually the ones that, yeah. that get to me mostly yeah and i've talked yeah. to other people they're like you know they're psychiatrists yeah say the same thing to me to me it's, it's all the same though it's not necessarily a case-by-case -case basis but I, I i feel most helpless when i know what i'm doing as a, as a physician kind of cynical i know what i'm doing as a physician does not matter that person won't get better because of xyz factors that are outside of my control or their control, you know, social uh, affect, homelessness, there's no funding, there's no resources in the community. I tell them, you need to find a therapist and uh, the they appointment is like six months out. I tell them, well, you need to you need to apply for shelter. Oh, well, there's no shelter in, 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 in the county. I tell them, well, you need to, you know, get social security disability. Well, they, they've been refused five times. So I'm like, I'm prescribing medication, I'm seeing you, but I don't know how to tell you that I cannot fix your social, your your biosocial, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, issues, you know. Um, so it doesn't matter how much medicine I give you, I can't fix your your life. The and surrounding issues. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, that's what we call the social determinants of health. You know, it's a it's a new fancy words that the, the oh, government the APA the loves this. They love. It's a new yeah, social. It's good. Yeah. Everybody's acknowledging that homelessness is a factor, but what are you doing about it? Everybody's acknowledging, oh, money is a factor. What are you doing about it? Right? Food security yeah. is a factor. What are you doing about it? There's a That's there's right. a there's a fast food in every corner. Every corner you look, there's a fast food. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, uh, so, and and in those places that has fast food, they don't have grocery stores. They don't have grocery stores. They're, they're so they're grocery, grocery, grocery graveyards. Right. Yeah. right. Anyway, so that, that, that's a soapbox. But yeah, those are things that, to your point, Dimitri, like those are things that when I think about them, if I think too much about them and I have too many patients with the same issues, I might not call it burnout, but the word might be overwhelmed or the word might be helpless. And, it, you know, some might call it burnout.
right, our guest today is Evan Jarshauer and Jessica Moraz. They are the co-owners of Behavioral Health Behavioral Help Solutions, a uh, therapy, counseling, and intervention practice. Uh, Jessica is a graduate of New York University. She's a licensed psychotherapist, clinical supervisor, and certified addiction professional. She's also managed, uh, been a managing director for and adult therapeutic services at a metropolitan hospital and supervised adolescent treatment programs through New York City. Evan is a licensed psychotherapist, master certified addiction professional, and certified interventionist, which is a great term, by the way. I, I love the way that sounds. Uh, it sounds like a little bit like a magician. Um, he did his internship in mental health counseling in South Florida at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital. And he received this clinical addiction training at the Hazleton School of Addiction Studies, which I believe is associated with Betty Ford. Yeah. Uh, and now uh, also graduated as an EMT at Miami-Dade College. He's appeared as a special guest on Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Season three, episode three, I believe is what it is. Yeah. Uh, genuinely Gigi from the Shaws of Sunset, which I have no idea what that is, but maybe you can educate us on that. Crime Time with Dr. Debbie. The Bill Cunningham Show, ABC, NBC, CBS News, and the Huffington Post. He's lectured for the United Way, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, and also Nova Southeastern University. Davey, stand up. All right. Uh, thank you guys both for joining us. Um, the first question I want to ask to you, Jessica, because we know Evan loves to talk, so I'm going to give you a chance <laughs> to go first. <laughs> okay. Um, what is an interventionist? Um, how did you guys get started in this and how did you guys uh, grow your practice? That's a great question. Um, I actually, uh, prior to joining Evan, I was working in a psychiatric uh, facility and um, I have extensive background um, working in psych and um, all various populations. And then I joined Evan. Um, so we could probably start there. And I want to bounce it back to Evan because he, he started uh, Behavioral Health Solutions, and I joined him about two years ago. Okay. So, um, go ahead. But, but what is an interventionist? So, within our work, I would say that the interventionists, um, since joining Evan, um, we work with families, uh, individuals, uh, mental health and substance abuse, dual diagnosis, um, really just needing someone to come in um, who, uh, you know, a lot of Families have tried this on their own, and um, they usually call us when they're in crisis, when the situation has gotten to the point that they're unable to uh, manage, um, and then they call us, and uh, we work with the family, and we're, we work all over the country. So wherever the need is, we actually work with the family. It could be one family member. It could be 12 family members, and um, we uh, fly out wherever they are we work with the individual, the identified person and the family. And ultimately we, um, we identify a facility or the best placement for the, for their loved one. And we get them there successfully. How does that, how do you go about setting that up? Because I think a lot of people who, who come to me about doing something like that, which I don't do, I usually, I refer them out, but they get this, they, they come to me with the sense that it's sort of like an ambush, that that's the way that they felt when they were in it. 
um, the family is clearly just trying to do their best, but mm -hmm. how do you guys set that up so that it doesn't feel like people are piling on? So it's a great question. And sometimes it does feel like that. Um, you know, when, when we work with a family, um, you know, it's, it's a very delicate situation because sometimes most of the time you are walking in, the family is very prepared. Um, everything is set up prior to walking in um, to meeting our loved one. So the minute we walk in, we get started. And so oftentimes uh, they could be just waking up in the morning, they could be um, ready to go out and we all walk in. And so we sit there and, and we ask them if we could share uh, some letters, um, you know, some concerns, some thoughts. Most of the time they do sit because they, they, they're very appreciative of having the family and friends uh, surround them. And there's other kinds of interventions as well, including um, an invitational model where the loved one, it could be their son, their daughter, uncle, aunt, um, they're aware of an intervention and we include them in the plan and we include them in the, um, in the idea of getting some help. And those are also very successful and they don't feel as, like you said, ambushed because it's more of a, a conversation um, and a very, uh, create a very supportive environment for the loved one. So they feel that it's not an ambush and they feel welcome to have a say in what treatment looks like for them. Yeah, I, I want to piggyback on, on, on that question Dimitri asked because I actually had that in my notes. Um, so I from, from the outside looking in, you guys interventionists look like, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like you guys look like um, you're coming in a situation as an outsider, right? The person that, that is the focus of the meeting shows up in the in the setting and they see their family members and uh, somebody they'd never seen before. And I guess from the first look, looking into it, it's them against me and that person, they don't know who they are. So how do you get to, in a in few minutes, in a short time, how do you gain the trust of that person to let them understand that you're not part of a team, you, you're a mediator, you're in the middle because they don't know you. They know you from their families, you know, contacted you, right? So short period of time, how do you gain that trust? Mm -hmm. That's that's a very good question. I don't know if you want to, Evan. Do you want to yeah, jump in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll jump in a little bit. I think going back to the question about what is an interventionist, I'm going to just just touch it briefly. I think we are an extension of you, of the social workers, of the psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, where you're limited as to the scope of where you can take your work. And we, are, we act, literally intervene, we engage in the moment of crisis in the, in the field. Uh, our office is the field, it's the home, it's the streets of Dallas, it's a prison, it's Phoenix, it's Santa Barbara, it's Boca Raton, wherever. And um, our job is to help put together um, in a very loving, supportive and understanding and comprehensive uh, manner a plan of action where a family may, a family, loved ones may have felt frozen and even emotionally held hostage and they're stuck and the individual stuck. And our job is to intervene in all that stuckness. Um, and at the end of the day, come out the other side with the person that has been identified as the one with the issue, them getting some help. With regard to the concept of the ambush, um, we get that all the time. And at the end of the day, in our work, 
there really is like in the uh, the Geneva, Geneva Convention. When you wage war, you're supposed to follow the Geneva Convention. But as we've seen through history, there are some people out there that don't. And in our work, we're dealing with issues where we have to be able to work outside of the scope of what might be a standard, maintain our ethical approach, but at the end of the day, help a family that may feel as though they've been held captive and an individual who's been held captive in his own mind and fundamentally in a very loving, supportive way, liberate everybody so that people can get some help and get unstuck and get to people like you. Evan, why did you choose this particular field as opposed to any other area of mental health as far as counseling or anything else? Why, why intervention? Yeah. So, um, and also our practice is expanding. We've brought in a couple of new people too, which is very exciting, but um, simple answer within the time frame we can work with here is that um, when I first started, I was working, I did my internship at Jack with Jack at Jackson. I worked for a state agency and I was doing working under a grant called TANF, Temporary Assistance Needed Families, Needy Families, Needed Families. And I would go out of the community and I would provide services. And um, I loved it. I love being able to bring the stuff, the help to people that might not otherwise walk into an office. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of how this evolved. And then um, when I became a licensed counselor, um, I just didn't like sitting in the office. I really enjoyed being out. So I found a way to use my own per personal pathologies, my own experience with addiction and mental health issues, my professional training, and my difficulty sometimes with attention and being able to be out in the field and bring the help to them and then serve as almost a bridge to get people to your office, uh, to treatment centers, to eating disorder programs all over the country. And so that's the kind of the foundation of how this all started. And um, then, you know, it, it, as it's evolved, um, gone into a variety of different issues, like I said, eating disorders, uh, compulsive um, gaming, sex addiction, um, attention deficit, compulsive, uh, mental health, substance abuse, and a whole bunch of other issues that we address. But that's the basic answer to your question. Okay. I actually wanted to ask you this because you brought it up your own mental health issues and struggles. I sure. saw uh, a podcast that you did where you talked about you being kidnapped by yep. your father and being taken to yep. Canada. And yep. tell me, how has that uh, guided your decision or affected your decision to go into this kind of field? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're all, we all get into what somehow we're connected to in some way, right? Somehow. And I think for me, at the end of the day, um, one of the things that, and I and um, I know Jessica and I are different people, but we have a lot of parallels with the appreciation and the recognition and the love of helping families. So for me, um, you know, my childhood was pretty dysfunctional, disjointed, um, very pathological in nature and the con concept of kidnapping a child. So for me, when I see families that have been disjointed, torn apart by mental illness, by addiction, um, 
for me helping to be a little cog, a little ball bearing in this chain of helping people and seeing people get together. Um, it's an amazing feeling like for, for me, for example, just, just had a, a recent case where uh, I can't get too deep into detail, but the person's father had passed when he was a little boy. Mom raised a kid by himself, by herself. So for me, being able to see that he was able to get some help, it was a, a dream of moms to see that person get on the road to recovery. And it was done in the honor of the father who had passed as a child. This is the kind of stuff that really um, fuels me professionally, personally, because I see people kind of getting back in connection with their family, whereas my kind of childhood there was pretty dis disrupted and disjointed. And so it's a good feeling for me. It's karma stuff. And I'm very well caffeinated too, by the way. It sounds like a lot of sublimation and, uh, and, and caffeine apparently. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a, it's, it's real deal. Jessica, I wanted to ask you this. Your website says, and I want to get this right. So I want to read it correctly. We specialize in breaking through seemingly impenetrable walls of resistance, denial, manipulation, and even bureaucratic red, red tape with our own unique, strategically compassionate and unifying approach. Can you tell us specifically what that unique, strategically compassionate and unifying approach is? Great question. Um, I would say when Evan and I, you know, or, or one of us will go I in love that question, Jessica. Well, that, please. Let, well, let, me let, let her it. answer it, and then, and then you can answer it in your own way, too. You know, yeah, I, I, say, I would say we have a very unique approach. Um, oftentimes, you know, we're, we spend hours and hours and hours with the family um, from the moment they call us all the way through meeting their loved one. Um, we go probably the extra mile, way beyond um you know, maybe what we have to do or what we should do, but, um, you know, and, and, and again, I don't know what other people are doing out there. We just can, can discuss, you know, and, and really do the best we can with the families, but we work, I'll give you an example. Sometimes, like I said, there's 12 people in a family and, um, there was one family in particular and there was a lot and they're all spread out. They, they're not living in the same, um, you know, city or zip code. Um, and just taking the time with each of them to get them organized for the day of the intervention. And sometimes it takes a few days. Sometimes the family could say, you know, um, how fast can we move in? But, you know, strategically, we also work to be as organized as we can so that if there's any questions, everything is understood and, and uh, answered prior to meeting with their family member. So I know Evan has another um, approach or another uh, comment to make regarding the specific words. So, please. Oh, that. What is, the, what the is your take on the that? Yeah, the reality is I've learned so much from Jessica with regard to, and you, and I, I think sometimes, you know, you're working with somebody and they don't realize what an amazing job they do or what an amazing contribution they are. But I've learned so much from Jessica in terms of how to work with a psychiatric hospital or a court system or a hospital where they are not providing information to a family because they are protecting HIPAA, they're protecting the rights of the patient. And we, I believe, and, and working with Jessica and learning so much from her, we have done, a, we do an amazing job of working with federally protected privacy laws, statutes, but, by, but, but at the same time, finding a way to also 
advocate for the benefit of that person getting some help. And sometimes there is a divergence between those two variables, between somebody wanting the protection of rights, somebody getting help, and in a very ethical, uh, professional way, we're able to kind of bridge the gap so that people don't fall through the cracks. And I've learned so much from Jessica in being able to work with hospitals and how to um, deal with issues where we need to get messages across. We need to help people understand the depth of the issues, um, but at the same time, not overstep our bounds, nor in any way violate anybody's rights. And that's been an amazing um, way to help families, help individuals that might not otherwise have received any help because people were so afraid of communicating. And we have, I believe, done an amazing job working with Jessica on finding a way to do that in an ethical and appropriate ma and legal manner. Mm -hmm. Understand. Now, I know that you talked about red tape and one of the things that um, as Dimitri, Steph, and I as treating professionals um, sometimes deal with our barriers with insurance companies. So based upon the services that you're discussing, um, it it would seem to me that this is something that's not covered by an insurance, by healthcare insurance. It's a great question. So our services are not covered by insurance, mm -hmm. but be but because of our services, Families that might not otherwise have you been able to use the benefits that they have, they're able to actually use the benefits. And not only that, but potentially even maximize the use of those benefits because there's a more comprehensive, unified approach towards helping people and establishing some boundaries and accountability. So, for example, you might have the most powerful insurance policy in the whole wide world. But if you can't get your loved one to a program, it doesn't matter. And so we help to bridge the gap in providing those services. That's the best answer I can give you with regard to, you know, our services privately paid, but we're helping yeah. families and people actually use the, the, the coverage that they have. Sure. And is there any suggestions you have for people who are solely reliant on their insurance, who might not be able to have the means to afford private services, because I don't take insurance in my practice either, right? And there are times when I have people who are in need of an evaluation, a forensic evaluation, and there are other avenues through the court that they can get those evaluations done at reduced fees and whatever it is, or the courts pay for it and the state pays for it. Um, what suggestions do you have for people who might not be able to afford those private services, but still want to get help for their loved ones? I think that reaching out to the pro programs that are covered by the care that the coverage you have, and then asking those programs um, that same question and they may have community resources that they can help those individuals tap into. Mm -hmm. They may even have people within their own organization that could serve as an extension to help get that person into a program. But that's what I would recommend they do. They can find the program you want them to go to that's covered through insurance and then ask those questions. What types of services or what type of um, referrals can you make to help me get my loved one to your program. Um, and oftentimes a program will give you that guidance. That's one big one that I think a lot of people haven't thought about tapping into. Understand.
So speaking of referrals and 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 services, I guess what could we tell our listeners and providers in in the mental health world about what steps people need to look at? You know, when is it time to call an interventionist? I guess problems, family problems, and interpersonal problems have echelon, right? There's at times that that might be that urgent, but what are the cues that would that would that would sh- should be um, you know, aware of to say this is time to call somebody to come in. And then I guess a second part of my question is that most people think of interventionists as people that help family members with addiction. Besides addiction to substances, behavior, shopping, gambling, what other, I guess, top three or top five um, issues that you guys get called in um, to try to manage and, and help families? Yeah, we're behavioral health interventionists. Our primary focus is mental health. Our world has exploded. Um, secondary, our substance abuse. We are our number one focus is um, depression, anxiety, uh, mood disorders, thought disorders, um, and our world is exploding. As far as the when, I want to defer that over to J- Jessica. Jessica, can you help out with that, please? When is the right time to call for someone like us to come and help? So, Jessica? right. So. In, in my experience, usually people call a therapist, a doctor, um, when things are pretty bad. And so I always say call when you start seeing uh, maybe someone's responding and no one's sitting there, or maybe they're hearing voices. Um, they could always call just for a phone call. It doesn't cost anything just to call and get some information. Um, the sooner, the better. And this way, if they want some information, we're always here as a resource. Um, you know, it's always good to stay connected. Oftentimes a family will call and then they'll call us back a month later, three weeks later. And at that time they said, you know what? Um, we're, we should have we should have hired you guys three weeks ago, but um, you know, we're calling you now. We definitely need some help. So I would always say the sooner the better. There's no harm in just picking up the phone and giving us a call. And I do, do sometimes feel like the, the family members at times, you know, I'm not sure if you ever encountered that situation, but is it sometimes you, you feel like the, the problem might not really be that one person, might be a family issue. So it, it's, it's hard to come in a situation and say, oh, that person, everybody's against that person or everybody's right and he's wrong. So how do you manage the the family dynamics you know everybody has their own their own stories you know whoever tell our stories probably right or wrong who knows so how do you manage that the interpersonal conflicts and he says and she says and and you in the middle so this goes back to your original question about trust which i'm sorry i didn't answer before okay um in order to get the person that we're the identity we call them the identified person we call the person we're trying to get help the identified person because we know that surrounding that identified person, there are a lot of other people there that have issues themselves, right? Um, So, but in order to get that person the help that they need, we first have to have the people that surround them have confidence and trust in us that we're coming from a place of care, compassion, understanding, that it's not all about the paycheck, that we are eat, eat, breathe, and sleep their loved one's issues. Once we have demonstrator once we've gained the trust of the people that surround that individual then we're able to engage with the person that we're trying to get help for because the reality is 
in order to help move this forward, we have to demonstrate to that person that once they say no, they're not going to get help because that's usually the initial response. We then have to demonstrate that the people that love you the most, they are unified and they've, they've come to us to help see that you get the help that you need based upon their concerns. And we also let them know we're not here to judge you. We're not here to do a field assessment necessarily. We're here to help see that whatever concerns the people that love you the most have can be properly addressed, assessed, and then a treatment plan can be put in place if there is, if those issues, concerns are valid in nature. Most of the time, almost always, there are valid issues and concerns that must that need to be addressed. But that's kind of how we do it. We start off with the family. We then move on into the identified person, family, friends, coworkers. And in, in, in your in your processes, is there a system where you validate the family's report? Let's say five siblings come to you and they all have something to say about the, the identifiable person. Do you vet that information before you go to that the focus, the person that's the focus? Do you vet those those report and see what's you know would believe or would trust? Great question. Um, yes, and all of our families, every member that's participating actually puts together, we call those impact letters that include all of the concerns, all of the issues. So we then are able to see that if we've, we've got a convergence of all the people together, they're all okay. It all appears this, these are the issues. Um, then it helps us um, have greater confidence that those, that those issues have a, that they're valid. But once again, we let the individual we're going to get help for know that we are not there to say, you're a, you've got depression, you've got anxiety, you've got bipolar. We're there to help the family communicate those issues, those observations in a non-judgmental, non-clinical, um, not like a WebMD trying to relate to somebody who's your loved one. We help the family share, I'm concerned because this is what we've seen. We want you to go get some help to address our concerns. And we want you to accept this gift of help. That's the flow. That's our process. And um, at the end of the day, um, that's how we do it. Jessica, what's the most difficult intervention you've ever had to do? <laughs> the most difficult. Um, we've had a few. We've had a few. We had one with um, DID and, um, you know, oh, multiple. Okay. Mm -hmm. We probably met maybe seven personalities. Um, I was on with Evan, and um, it was very, very interesting. Um, it was the there was just two people involved: the mother and the father. And um, this was dual, you know, heavy, heavy duty substance use. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, we actually did get him um, some help. And I believe uh, they did follow up with you, Evan, long after the intervention, and he's doing quite well. But without going too too much into detail, um, that was probably the most interesting case um, and most enjoyable. Okay. The personalities are coming out all all over the place, and we had to somehow get them on a plane and get them help. So that was challenging. Wow, that's, that's crazy. Wow. And, um, and get through the, the airport and get through. The, and get, through, awesome. I get, yeah. <laughs> right, get through the airport. That was, um, yeah, that was challenging. You had to convince all the personalities. 
Right, with, uh, with the IDs, the proper ID. They all agreed on a window seat. <laughs> there was agreement. <laughs> Excellent. That, that brings good. me to my next question about location. You mentioned that your office is all over the place. What's the oddest place that you've ever done an intervention? Well, I'll let you go first, Jessica. Okay. Um, so they're all very, most of them are, you know, um, either in the home or um you know, usually in the home, I would say out the two top for me is outside of a jail. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were taking, Evan and I were together on that. And then the other one was about a four day, five day intervention where it started in one state. Um, couldn't find the, the individual. And then we, uh, she was located and we flew to another state and we ended up finding her. And we did the intervention outside at a cafe of a restaurant, um, all sitting in a circle, um, having some tea or coffee. And it was the friends and the family. And uh, that's probably that probably takes the cake. That that one stands out as uh, my number one. The jail probably is number two. A four day intervention sounds less like an intervention and more like a uh, an exorcism. That, so, that was a marathon. That was kind of, yeah, correct, that yeah. was intense. That was intense. Yeah. And you both survived. Amazing. Could have been a completely different movie back then. We actually wanted, we were going to keep going, um, if you can remember. And it was just 12, 13 hour days from starting at 7 a.m. all the way to the late hours. And uh, they actually took breaks to take naps during because they were so tired. And Evan and I were like, we were just, come on, guys, we got to do it. And they just, they said, you know what, let's just call it a night. So, wow. you know, it, it was probably, let's say one o'clock in the morning and they just, they just couldn't do it anymore. And we just got up the next day, 7 a.m., 6 a.m. and started all over again. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get you out on these two questions. Um, you were on, I, I watched your episode of the Kardashians. Can you give uh, the lay people an idea of what they are actually like when they're not on camera? Yeah, they were extremely gracious um and i owe them a, a huge i will always owe the family and um the production company a huge set of gr uh, gratitude for uh, inviting me to be part of that um but they were um a very loving family um when i was there and um when i was there i can't speak about how things are now but when i was there it was very real and uh, this is when it, where kim was just beginning to really make a lot of money, become start to really become very successful. And the family was genuinely concerned how that would affect her um, uh, and affect each other. But at the end of the day, the, the, the family mom, Chris, was very inviting. Um, the sisters, they were they were all very appreciative. And uh, and even Bruce, who was Bruce at the time, now Caitlin, um, they were all just a really embracing, warm family and very appreciative of me coming out there to conduct a behavioral health intervention on Kim for compulsive compulsive behaviors. Um, and even Kim was gracious about it. A um, little mocking at the end if you watch the whole yeah. thing, but at, at the end of the day, they were very appreciative of me coming out to help. And I will always be appreciative of them allowing me to be on the show um, because for sure that has you know helped get my word out. Um, and I work with a lot of families from that, from that, I can't disclose that. I can only right. disclose this because it was in the public right. domain. 
But from there, they connected me or I was connected with a lot of other families and a lot of other people that there's no way in hell. I, I can't disclose any of that because it's all private information. That's but correct. it's been a, yeah. it was a really great it was of a course. really great opportunity. And they were a really great family. Excellent. Well, I'm going to get you guys out on this. Um, you did go to the University of Miami and you, you know, taught at Nova. You're, sounds like you're a South Florida guy. I want to do an intervention on Mario Cristobal for uh, taking knees at the end of games because he refuses to take knees at the end of games. And it's already cost Miami a game this year. How do I go about doing an intervention with Mario Cristobal about taking a knee uh, for the, for the sake of the university of Miami fan. It's a great question. Um, we have done a very good job of staying away from politics, religion, um, and probably sports sporting too. But at <laughs> okay. the end of the day, at the end of the day, um, probably bringing in the people that care about them the most, the coaches, family, staff, and probably, you know, expressing concern, looking at the options. And then at the end of the day, you know, asking him to do the right thing. And ultimately you're saying, what is, what is he supposed to do? Take a knee. He's supposed to take, take a knee a, at the end then, of the game then, when the game is over. Then, then if that's the objective of the intervention, please take, will you please accept this gift of taking a knee? <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, finally, good. tell us, Tell us uh, the name of your practice. Tell us where to find you uh, and how people can contact you and get the help that they need. Yeah, sure. So our website is real simple. It's behavioralhelp.com. Uh, behavioral health was 60000 I bought behavioral help, which is 1500 and it does us just fine. So it's behavioralhelp.com. Um, they're welcome to call our main hotline, which is 305 Four six seven eight six 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 three zero five four six seven eight six six six, or just go to behavioralhelp.com and you can find us there. And um, we'd love to speak with you. We can give you a different direction, but we'd love to do that as well—a free consultation. Um, but uh, we do, and we also very much appreciate the opportunity to be on um, the Psych Effect as well with you guys. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Well, Thank you. That was, that was fun. Today. Evan Jarshauer, Jessica Moraz, Behavioral Health Solutions, Behavioral Help Solutions. I'm going to get that right. Uh, thank you guys both for coming on. Uh, great talk and good luck to both of you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So this is going to be our last episode of this year. After that, we're going to go on, I don't know what it is, two or three week hiatus until we come back in January, but we're going to close this out strong with the mental health tip of the day. Day full of hiccups, need a shake up, listen up. It's the Psych Effect Podcast Mental Health Tip of the Day. All right. The mental health tip of the day comes from one of my favorite movies. It's even it's one of my favorite movies now. It was one of my favorite movies as a kid. I couldn't watch it enough. And they're going to ruin my childhood again, Hollywood, by coming out with a prequel. The movie 
the, the movie where this clip is from is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, go see it. One of go my favorite Go stream movies. it, find it. There's memes all over the place of Willy Wonka now from that movie. Anyway, um, they're going to make a Wonka prequel. And yes, I'm going to see it. And Me too. yes, I'm going to hate it because it's going to ruin my childhood. But I'm really rooting for it because I love the Wonka character and the last version of him, Johnny Depp. Yeah. So well, it was a darker without... version of was Willy it Wonka. It was a darker because version. Because Johnny Depp can't play a normal character. The last Why? normal character he played. Because he's not was, normal? I, I wouldn't do that to Johnny Depp. He plays like odd characters. That's his eccentric. Play eccentric yeah, but he is such a character. good good actor. actor. And I he mean, works a lot with that. Tim Burton. Who's but he does this thing movie. where it's like he can't like play it straight. Like the last normal like normal quote-unquote character like that wasn't like an accent or you know another country or just like a weirdo like Willy Wonka the last normal character he played I think was when he was his first movie A Nightmare on Elm Street that was his last normal oh that's character, a good one too which I just watched today again um it, it's a t looking back on it now is a really terrible oh nice I think it goes to speak though just of anyway. what kind of act how good of an actor he is that he can create all of those different right. characters. Although you're finding them weird and odd and eccentric, yeah. whatever it is, that was the genre, the genre of the movie. You know, that right. was the director's take, the writer's take. And then he, I'm pretty sure, also takes some artistic liberty with his characters yeah. too. Like from what I heard, he did that with Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, he took a lot of liberties. Which was great because Jack Sparrow is a great character. Like I can't see job. anybody else ever playing Jack Sparrow. Right, right. So it's, it's a casting issue. He, he, he plays himself out of, to your point, he plays himself out of normal roles because he's so good as an actor. Exactly. I guess it's a it's a casting issue, you know. So, but it's not that he's not good. He's great. But this is the mental health tip of the day. This comes from Gene Wilder from the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and it's also one of my favorite quotes in general. A little nonsense now and then is relished by the wisest men. <laughs> if you couldn't hear that, he said, a little nonsense now and then is relished by the wisest men. I was hoping and that it, was the quote you were playing. <laughs> it's one of my favorite yeah. quotes. Mm -hmm. And look, if, Explain. if this podcast is not an indication of, of that quote in action, then I don't know what is because... We talk about serious stuff, but we're not really serious here. Um, and I think that if you feel burned out or you feel down or you feel anxious, a little nonsense goes a long way. Yes. And yeah. that's why it is relished by the wisest men and women, I guess. I mean, it was yeah. the 70s. Uh, would he say uh, is relished by the wisest people now? If this movie by the wisest per person, people, yeah. Persons, person, yeah. yeah. But it doesn't rhyme with then of course not <laughs> you need <Okay>. picking <laughs> yeah i am nitpicking. but yeah but anyway. i agree i agree that that sounds good like take yourself lightly sometimes don't be too yeah, serious right. you know yeah i get it yeah just like don't the show. take yourself so seriously that's right all right take look. time out for yourself have fun be goofy thank you guys all for giving us uh this year um yep in february it's going to be one year that we were doing this 
we'll have to see if we can come up with something special for that. But uh, thank yeah. you guys for hanging in with us for these last, you know, 10 months or so. And we'll keep going as long as you keep yeah, listening. We're going to keep going. Yeah, I think I think we had a very good I think we had a very good second half of the year. We got a really good guest. Um, so hopefully in the next year we get more people in on the show to spread the word and to continue to fight against stigma and all while making it fun. So yeah, looking forward to next year. Absolutely. You know where to find us? We are at Psych Effect Pod on every single social. So you can't miss it. It's the same thing across the board. Thank you guys again. Uh, like the videos and comment if you can. We appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Happy holidays, everyone. See you. Happy holidays, everyone. Holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah, Dimitri. We're in yeah. Hanukkah right now. Happy Hanukkah. We will see you guys in January. Yep. The previous podcast is for general informational purposes only and represented the individual opinions of Dr. Dimitri Bick, Dr. Stefan de Graff, Dr. Suzanne Mignon, and the guests. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services and should not be taken as medical advice or an establishment of standard of care. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.